Welcome back. Thank you for that little moment. You know that at times we have to do that. But when you think of the book of Revelations, you're dealing with seven churches, and the seven churches are under immense pressure at that time. And of course, John is 80 years old. He met Jesus probably when he was 20, 60 years ago. And of course, he knows all that, is, that has taken place. He knows all of the story and all that has happened. And, and we want to pick this up about how at that time, of course, John was on the Isle of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around and to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands... Someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful uh, description of who Jesus Christ is, of the difference that he makes, and how he talks? And as we look at these verses and understand exactly what is being communicated, exactly what is being said, I turned... Now, of course, we know the situation. John is on the Isle of Patmos. It is about 96 AD. Uh, uh, Domitian is the emperor of the Roman world. He's particularly nervous and insecure. The one thing that Domitian is absolutely terrified about is that he will be killed or assassinated. And so Domitian is there, and of course, in, in AD 92, 40,000 Christians were killed in the Roman Empire at that time. And so the whole of the church and the world was thrown upside down, and of course, John was part of this. He was part of this. 
He was part of what was taking place. He was part of what was going on. Uh, Paul was dead. Peter was dead. Timothy had been beaten to death. The church was in crisis. It is now 96 AD, and he is found on the Isle of Patmos. What is Patmos? It is this small island where they used to send all the dissidents, where they sent all the troublemakers, where they sent all the people that were creating the problems in the Roman Empire. This was the place. And he went to crush rocks. He went to work. He went to be not made into a martyr because they didn't want another martyr, which would fuel the kind of movement of the Christianity. So they thought, well, put him on an island, keep him there, and he'd be nice and quiet. He's 80 years old, and he's not going to cause any problems. Well, little did they know that the son of the living God, the glorious Jesus Christ, has an all-access pass to the Isle of Patmos. And so there they are containing the 80-year-old. And you've got to watch out for 80-year-olds sometimes. You've got to watch out, you know, particularly 80-year-olds that are on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to watch out what could happen because even if you're 80 or beyond, God's not finished with you yet. God's not finished with us until we're finished and we see him face to face. And so what is he doing? He's actually there in prayer on the Lord's day. He is praying and as he is there, he turns around. Now, some may say that this was like a vision. Some may say that this is like an actual um, kind of experience that is happening in his mind and so on. But it was so physical and so in the moment that he turned and he looked and there he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. In a way, why would he have to turn if he was seeing it in his mind? Why would he have to go this way? He's, he's praying and he turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches, of course. And these churches of which this letter is written to. And Jesus is about to give him instruction. But what Jesus is actually doing in this he is purging John of his preconceptions and he is giving John a new vision of who Jesus Christ is. After 60 years of preaching the good news, after the most dreadful, dreadful persecution under Nero, under Vespasian, under uh, uh, now, of course, under Domitian. And there they have experienced, the church has been in problems and experienced this pain and this difficulty. And suddenly, you know, the Lord just changes his heart, changes his view, changes. He doesn't appear to him and give him a new strategic plan for the growth of the seven churches in Asia Minor. He doesn't appear to him and tell him how he's going to raise the budget to run the churches. He doesn't appear to him and said, this is how you can organize yourself and you can then do a resistance movement against the Roman Empire. He doesn't instruct him in that way. What he actually does, he turns to him and he gives him a brand new vision of Jesus Christ. And Jesus breaks through. He could have given him a lot of visions. He could have given him a reminder of when John was present when the water was turned into wine in Canaan. 
of Galilee. He could have reminded him of the time when he's fed 5,000 people there on the shores of uh, Lake Galilee. He could have reminded him of the moment and given a fresh revelation of the moment when, when Jesus stood by the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. He could have reminded him of the moment, of course, on the cross and on the day of the resurrection. John knew all of this. But no, at this moment... In 96 AD, he reminded him who truly Jesus Christ is. He revealed to him in all his glory. And when you look and you see exactly at that moment amongst the lampstands, someone like a son of man, what does that mean? Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. Someone like the Son of Man. This statement, the Son of Man, is taken right from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where it talks about you will see the one who is an ancient of days, the one, the Son of Man, that will arrive and come, and all the nations of the world. This is the most largest statement in the ancient world you could ever give anybody. The Son of Man. He is that one. He is the one in Daniel chapter 7 who rules the nations. It doesn't matter what empires. It doesn't matter what forces in the world. It doesn't matter what nations think they are arrogant and proud. This one, this son of man who shines in glory, rules the nations, rules the world, and is glorious and magnificent. And he's reminding John, hey, John, listen, listen to me. You feel like you're being pressed down by the Roman Empire. You feel like there is no help and there is no hope as you're on an island full of people who've been sent there as dissidents and people who are out of favor with the Roman Empire. But I want you to see with your eyes the glory and the blazing and the magnificent. And in this first moment of this first vision of Jesus, of which there are six visions of Jesus in the book of Revelations, and we'll go through them. And at this first one, we are introduced to Jesus. And among the lampstands, someone there like the Son of Man, like Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, one who rules the nations, one who is the greatest, one who is the most victorious, one who is the Lord, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. Notice here a robe. What does a robe speak of? The robe speaks of that he is the priest. He's the high priest. The word priest in the Latin means bridge builder. And what Jesus is, he is the bridge builder. He is the one, the high priest that has come to come to us closely and to build the bridge between us and the glory of eternity. He is dressed as a priest. Not only is he dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, he has a golden sash around his chest. Usually golden sashes around the waist. When you see pictures of priests, they're here. Why is it around the chest? Well, very simply, because when a priest finished his duties and done his task, then he would take it from around his waist and he would put it on his chest, saying the job is completed. 
And he stands there and he looks at him and he sees him in his white robe as the highest, highest of priests. And he stands there as the one who builds the bridge between heaven and earth. The one that built a bridge to rescue humanity. The one that built the bridge to change our lives. The priest that was stretched out to bring the two together in white and glory. And the sashes across his chest saying, it is done. No more work. No more sacrifices. Jesus paid the price and we are free. At that moment. And then they look. Reach down at his feet uh, with a golden sash on his chest. Speaking, of course, that he's also the king. And then we go into seven, seven highlights of the physical nature of Jesus who we're seeing at the moment. And sometimes for us, like John, we need our brains decluttered. We need our minds purged of the kind of perhaps lack of glory and power and might that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. They needed to receive this letter to be read out in all the churches to infuse them, to excite them, to remind them that worshiping Babylon will never get you anywhere. You only worship the Lamb of God who brings life and joy. It's about who you worship. He wants to wake them up from their complacency. That's why our imaginations in the book of Revelation is brought alive because we are seeing things and experiencing things we've never seen or barely experienced through Scripture. Our imagination. And boy, if I have a prayer for any of us, I pray that we'll become spiritually awake as a church and our literally our imaginations in our belief in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ will simply grow, expound, grow exponentially that our love for Jesus and who he is will explode because we have a fresh, new, glorious vision that brings us out of our complacency and brings us into a loving, life-changing devotion to Jesus. And he stands there, and the hair, first of all, seven. Number one, we're going to look at his, his, his physical, his hair that is there, that we know. Number two, his eyes. See his eyes, number three, his feet. Number four, his voice. Number five, his right arm. Number six, the way that he shines and the way that his head is there. It's, it's absolutely glorious. So first of all, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. Let's split that down. His hair on his head was white. What does that speak of? It speaks of literally a phrase I want to use, the ancients of days. He is the ancient of days. Again, in Daniel chapter 7, when it talks about the one who will come and rule he is over every empire. He's over every nation. He is ageless. He is eternal. 
He's the beginning and the end. And when you see his white hair and you see it like wool, and of course, John is trying to find words because he doesn't have words to explain it. He's actually, by this very statement, saying that Jesus is the eternal one. Do you remember in 1 Colossians when it talks about that all of creation, all of everything, all the cosmos and the stars and all of creation is given... Is created and is held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, he sees a vision of the ancient of days, that whether it is the, the Assyrian Empire, whether it's the Babylonian Empire, whether it's the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, whether it's going to be the Roman Empire, whether it's going to be the, the British Empire, whether it is the Spanish Empire, whether it is all the empires of the world, the Russian Republic, whether it is the Chinese Republic, no matter who you are, no matter how great you think you are, no matter no matter how influential and powerful you think you are, there is an ancient of days that is over every empire of every time, of every decade throughout the world. This is the image. When he saw this image and they heard this, they would think immediately that he is the ancient of days and he rules over all. How comforting this is to a group of Christians in little towns, like in little communities, Philadelphia, little towns that are struggling to make their faith, that have infighting, that are losing their way, that are losing their heart, that are losing their first love, to be reminded, will you just stop looking down and start looking up. Will you just see Jesus for who Jesus really is? So he's got his hair blazing, eyes piercing like fire. Of course. Because when you truly meet the Lord Jesus Christ, his eyes comes to you and he burns and purifies us to the very depths of our soul. The eyes represent, of course, the wind of the soul in Scripture. And it's this moment where he lugs and sees, and he lugs at them and sees them, and he comes to us and he sees our weaknesses, and he purifies us, and our souls are purified, and we are changed. And each one of us who bear the name of Jesus, at some point we've had that moment when we've realized that the eyes of the Lord have looked at us, and we know that we are dirty, that we know that we are broken, that we know that we are sinful, and his blazing glory lugs into our soul and through the work of the cross he purifies us he transforms us and he saves us so he lugs at them oh how Jesus wants to look in each of our hearts in each of our souls come close to us he's got feet that are blazing like bronze and, uh, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. What does that remind you of? 
course, for the readers of this, instantly they know. They're reminded of Daniel again. They're reminding of the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. And they're reminding of the tall image, of the great image that goes all the way down from, from the top to the bottom of gold and silver and iron. And right the way down to the feet of mixed clay. You remember that vision? And of course, that vision suggests that on the foundations of the nations and the empires of the world, there is no stability. It is a mixture of clay. It is a mixture. And of course, through the, through the ages, particularly in the 70s and 80s, we made much about the toes, about the clay. Preachers preached about the European Union. They speculated about the past and the future. And if you followed you know, eschatology teaching through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s, you know how the stories changed, right? Oh, that represents this and that represents that. Speculative, futuristic thinking taking from Scripture. And some of us have been disappointed by that. But let me just tell you what the feet truly represent. They represent the fact that there might be great empires throughout history, but their feet is of clay and they are broken and they cannot stand because the only feet that will stand forever are the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ who are burning bronze and will never be shaken. So the message they want to remind them is this. He wants to remind them that it's solid with Jesus. Whereas the picture in Daniel, of course, is that no empire is solid. And it will, of course. No empire is solid. The only solid place to believe is to believe and to look at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, we need to be rooted in that knowledge. That he's the ancient of days, he's eternal that he has the eyes that pierce and talk to us and come close to us, that his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. In other words, you can trust him, you can trust him, you can trust him. You can't trust the philosophies of the world, but you can trust the Jesus Christ. What a lovely moment this is. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. I love that. Rushing water. We all love rushing water, don't we? We, we love it. It is, you go and sit by, by a stream or a brook and you listen to it. It is, what does it speak of? Peace. It speaks of closeness. So we've gone from knowing his absolute lordship as one who is over time, as one that pierces our hearts, as one that is a kingdom that will never be broken like the picture of Daniel. And suddenly then he goes, but his voice was like rushing water. And when you hear the voice of Jesus in our heart and our life, don't every one of us know without a doubt 
that when we hear his whisper, it brings peace to our hearts. I mean, if you, if you did read any, uh, this week I read a few um, research papers on the effect of rushing water on the human. I was fascinated by this. I just got carried away. Did you know that when you listen to rushing water, it actually, in some way, it, it, it helps a person to become peaceful? Scientific fact. It can actually help lower your blood pressure. Scientific fact. It can actually make a difference to your mental way you think. Listening to rushing water can be healing. It can take away anxiety. It can help with depression. It can make a difference. All of these are empirically researched realities. And that's why you like to go and sit by Mission Creek because it does something to you right. Did you know that? I didn't until this week. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Because when you have a fresh vision of Jesus and you hear his voice, boy, does that give you peace. And in this world, we all need a fresh moment of hearing the voice of Jesus. And in his right hand, he holds seven stars. And in his right hand, he held seven stars coming out of his mouth was a Sharp, double-edged sword. Let's think about the seven stars. Really interesting, the seven churches. It's even more intriguing, though, that the seven stars for the readers in this time would have instantly thought of what? They would have thought of seven planets. Because they knew that there were seven planets that were present. And of course, you know, we know with Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and, and Saturn, and Jupiter, etc. We know, and there were, there were seven that they thought about. And, and some of the ancient gods used to have the seven planets uh, on their thrones. And emperors would have stars of the seven stars. And it was linked to the kind of idea about the stars ruling us and, and astrology and the power of, 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 of the planets and the gods and so on. And what does John see? He sees Jesus holding seven stars because it doesn't matter if you are a planet or an ancient god or who the pagans believed in. Jesus Christ is the Lord over everything and is the Lord over all that is pagan. He is the only true God. And they're going, whoa, he's got seven stars, like all of the Roman Empire's gods. And where does he have them? In his hand. He's ruling. It speaks of dominance. It speaks of victory. It speaks of life. It's amazing. Of course, it speaks of the seven churches that gives them significance that they're not just not anybody, but they are loved and known and cared by God. And I think it can be hard for us as Christians today to believe that Jesus is amongst us in our church. And that's why I'm always encouraging Zach, keep singing, keep getting the congregation worshiping, keep, because let's come together because Jesus is right here amongst us. He knows each one of us. And we need a fresh vision of him.
And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. The word in the Greek for this double-edged sword is is a classic two-sided, short, tight Roman sword. It's not any of the other versions, a Greek or a long sword of Egyptians. And and I I honestly, I... um, I'm a bit of a geek about history sometimes, and I, I was traveling through London on the way to Tanzania, and, and Michelle was with me before she went to her mom's, and I said, well, yeah, you know what I want to do, though? I want to go to the British Museum, because I wanted to go. They had a special exhibition of life as a Roman soldier. I know. She went to the coffee shop. And... <laughs> And I, I said, I'll go off now. And I went round and I saw the Assyrian um, reliefs. And I stood by, you know, um, Egyptian mummies. And I hung out with Greek gods. And I stood there by the Gilgamesh text, which is the oldest text that is the kind of flood text. And I looked at it. It's about this big, but I got close up to it. And I just wanted to get there. And there I got close to Five little Roman swords. And they are about this big. And they were originals used by a Roman soldier. And I was just looking at them. And here in the scripture it said that his tongue is like this sword. What does that mean? Because the thing about a Roman sword is that it's always close combat. And it's always personal. It's not like out here. It's here. And when Jesus comes to you and speaks, it is personal. It is intimate. It's close. True? And when he speaks to us through the word of God, it cuts us and ministers to us and speaks to us and changes us. It's amazing, isn't it? And his right hand uh, coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all his brilliance. I mean, John doesn't have words. He's saying it's like. He uses the word like. Like. He uses it grammatically correctly, unlike how teenagers use the word like. I remember my kids all went through like this, like that, like that. I wanted to, ah. But you have to be a cool dad, don't you? Which I've never managed. But he says it's like. It's like the sun at noon with warmth and power and strength. That's Jesus Christ. It's like. Like the sun. I haven't got words, he's saying. I'm in this place of prayer. I'm receiving a vision. It's not only physically, but I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. And I'm looking into his face and I'm just feeling the warmth. I'm hearing his voice and I'm feeling the peace. He's ministering to me through his word, and it's cutting deeply and personally. I'm reminded that even though 
Domitian is on the throne and killing Christians all over the empire. That he is the Lord, the one with the blazing bronze feet. So John, wake up. John, don't despair. John, don't, because now, 2,000 years ago, in a little church in Willow Park, in a place called Rutland, we are preaching this message that invaded an 80-year-old's mind in the middle of persecution, and we're still declaring that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Wake up. Wake up. It's like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And now we finish. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I think one of the biggest battles the church had was fear. The truth is, the biggest battle in human heart is fear of death. It's fear. It's fear of disaster. It's fear of what they can do to you. It's fear of a circumstance. And Jesus looks at the old pastor in his 80s who'd been with Jesus. And he said, don't be afraid. It's okay. Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I'm in control. I've got the car keys. I'm the one driving this bus. I'm the one in control. I'm the one who is ageless. I'm the one who pierces with fiery eyes. I'm the one with bronze solid feet. I'm the one with a voice that brings peace. I'm the one that holds everything, stars and churches in my hand. I'm the one that when I talk to you, it's up and pierces your heart. I'm the one that brings warmth and I am the one who holds the keys to death. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place. So he did write it, of course. And we are reading it. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I know everything about these churches that you're pastoring. I know about their problems. And I am here in all my glory. This morning, Jesus knows everything about you. And about your journey, your life. He just wants you to not be complacent. He wants you to have a fresh vision of how great he truly is. Amen? Amen. What a great scripture.
boy, this is one of six moments when we see Jesus in a different way. But it's a good way for beginning. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Let's stand together. And let's give thanks. As we finish and sing, I'm going to invite the prayer team to come and the um, uh, elders, if they are, are here, to come and to stand. Remember, tonight is let's be found in the Spirit praying on the Lord's Day. We've got our prayer meeting tonight. We've got 40 minutes of worship. We've got time of prayer. We're going to bring the life of the church. Really need you to be there. Don't be complacent. Let's keep praying as a church and seeing all the goodness that God is doing. And let's believe and let's pray together and worship together. But Lord, I do pray at this moment, our lovely congregation, my dear friends that are here, I pray that all of us will have a fresh revelation of Jesus the high priest, completing his task, the king of all, the one who is ageless, the one who purifies, the one who is solid and dependable, the one that speaks peace, the one that holds the universe in his hands, the one whose tongue is like a sword and cuts through our nonsense, and the one who is like the sun, blazing in all glory. You can trust him. Thank you, Lord. We can trust you. And help us to be ignited in our imagination about who and what our faith should be about, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.